You may be seated for our, our first reading. We have two readings today. One is from Genesis and the other is from the Gospel of John. We'll have you stand for John, but remain seated for Genesis. So our first reading is from Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This ends our Old Testament reading. If you'd please rise for the gospel. Gospels from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's room to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then... Will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's the end of our reading. Thank you. Get that graceful microphone pass. Brothers and sisters, loved by God, grace and peace are yours in Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, if you've come to worship 
uh, frequently, or if you come to worship frequently, you know that there are multiple types of sermons. There, there's the type that you've got to work a little bit with, strive a little bit with, um, that you kind of have to, have to sort of wrestle a little bit in your mind with. Um, then there's the type that leaves you kind of feeling warm and fuzzy inside, makes you walk away kind of going, yeah, this sermon is, is the first type. Right? So I'm just warning you now, I need you to engage your brains a little bit today. I need you to, to kind of work a little bit with me through this, because the topic at hand is a difficult one. The topic at hand is love grown cold. What it means to know that love grown cold is possible even in us if the love of God is not shining on us. And what we see through the scriptures, particularly these two passages, but we could look elsewhere as well, is that we see a God who, who works in the midst of, of a selfish love of his people, a selfish love that grows cold in order in order to revive them, in order to bring their hearts back to life, in order to work in us so that our love might be on display for other people. The truth is, uh, we're dealing with a difficult reading when we get into the reading about the flood. The flood has, has all kinds of things in it that are, that are hard for us, challenging for us to understand and to take. And people will take the story and, and they'll decide we don't have enough information, right? Because there are gaps, there are, there are things that we don't know in the story, and what happens when we don't have the information that we want, we have this tendency to just make stuff up. And the problem is that we typically will make stuff up and fill in blanks when we have no right doing that. Because the truth is we have enough. We have enough in what God has revealed for us. If we take the whole of Scripture, if we understand what's happening, then we begin to see the things that are happening there and to understand how God is at work. You see, when we just start to ask questions that have no answers, we start to ask questions that we don't know the answers to. That's, that's called probing the hidden God. And that's dangerous because we can make a caricature out of who God truly is and who he's revealed himself to be. And so when we look at the flood, it's important that we don't, we don't dwell on those things that we don't know, but that we dwell on the things we do know. Because the story that emerges is a story of the living God, a, a living and a holy God who's seeking to love his people even in the midst of their rebellion, and to love his people in a way that will cause them, will cause us to love other people with that same love. So let's dig into Genesis 6 first. We start with Genesis 6, and we go back a few verses, back before even our reading for this morning. It starts off with God declaring this, my spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. Right? My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. We learn two really important things. First of all, we learn that all human beings are mortal. Now that shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, right? This is absolutely true. We still know it to be true. No matter about the advances in medical science, the ratio of life to death is still one to one. And it always has been. But at this time, people are living much longer. And in the midst of these long lives, they're striving and contending with God. That's the second thing that we see. Humans are contending with God. My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. And this striving is at war. It's a fight. It's always pushing against what God wants to do. And so this striving, this contending, this war has reached such a fevered pitch that God's going to do something about it. Now, striving and contending with God, we know something about that too, don't we? We might quote the wisdom of Solomon here, who says there's nothing new under the sun. For we still, in our sinful nature, still strive against God, are still at war with him, still fighting against him. And so then what follows is of particular interest to us. But what follows is difficult to see. It's difficult for us to come to grips with. Because what happens is that God sends a flood that wipes out the world. 
And now we have to understand, this isn't a start over, right? As if God were going to vaporize everything, make everything back to nothing, and then resume his work of creation to do it all over again. We might say that this is kind of God setting a reset button right, pushing that reset where God is enacting a new order. And remember, we don't know why God deals exactly this way at this time. He could have started over. He absolutely could have destroyed everything that he had made, brought everything back to nothing, spoken the word once again, and created something anew. But that's not what he does. As a result of the rebellion, the contending of humanity, God chooses this path, the path of a flood, We read this in the scriptures, it grieved God that he had made man, that God's heart was filled with pain because he saw the status of everything that he had made. Uh, Are you you an artsy person? Are you somebody who can build things with your hands? I know some of you are. You can build things, you see them in your mind, and then you go and you make them or you paint them or you draw them. I'm not. I wish I were. I see them in my mind. I've got that part, but I can't transfer it to my hands. Right, so like I'll, I, I've tried to paint something before, like and I show it to Kate. I'm like, look, and she's like, oh, it's a, it's an alien. I'm like, yes, it's an alien. I was I was going for a barn, but it's actually an alien, right? It's it's abstract. It wasn't meant to be that way, but it's abstract. And you know that feeling when you make something it doesn't come out exactly the way you want it to. It grieved God in His heart that He had made man. Not because he had made it improperly or made it wrong, but because of what had been done to it. Because of the brokenness of what he saw. Every inclination of the man that he had made was saturated with sin and evil and getting worse. Every inclination of the human heart was saturated with sin. Everyone except Noah and his family. Everyone except for eight people. And God saw the righteousness of those eight. And so we might look and to say it's for the sake of those eight people that God didn't simply wipe everything out and start anew. It was for the sake of those eight people that God provided an escape. He told Noah to build a boat. To build a boat that would rescue and save them. In fact, that the very waters that caused the destructive flood would be the very waters that would float the boat and would save Noah and his family and all the animals that God had brought to them. That the very waters that brought devastation and destruction would be the waters of salvation through which Noah and his family would pass. This is a great story of redemption and of rescue. It's a story of God who knows the righteousness even of eight people and refuses to let them be. And we see an important piece in this. We see things that that we also need to come to grips with, that first and foremost, God is holy, and he will not and cannot simply ignore sin. And we see also in this that all humans are susceptible to sin, that all sin, and they are and were responsible and accountable for that sin, that all human beings have to give account for what they have done and the things that they have left undone. And we see in this text, we see this important piece of the holiness of God and of the unholiness of humans. 
And then there's something to the side that I always feel is important. Whenever you read an account like this, whenever you see God working in wrath, especially in the Old Testament, when people say, well, God's just angry, it's important for us to know what we know. And I started with this, with verse 3. My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. And the ratio of life to death is still one to one. And the flood does not say that all of the people that died went to hell. It simply says that all people who are already mortal simply have that mortality brought up to speed. We don't know exactly why God acts this way. We don't know why he does this. And so we want to run to those things we don't know instead of the things that we do know. That by their rescue, by their salvation, God was showing his people that he loved them that they would have a point of contact with God, that they would know the ways that he had worked so they would know what God was doing going forward. And so Noah and his family, when they come out of that ark, praise God for what he had done. And now honestly consider the impact of this flood. Consider the fact that people are still grappling with it, still wrestling with it, still struggling to understand it. Why? Because we know that the fundamental truths, the underlying causes of the flood have not changed that God is still a holy God who will not and cannot simply ignore sin. And we know that all humanity is sinful and is responsible and accountable for their sin. And so what happens? What happens when we take these things at face value and understand that they still apply to us? It means that God reveals a greater plan that when God pushes the reset button, he makes a promise with his people, right? He makes a promise that comes a couple of chapters after the flood. This promise that he makes with Noah and his family that will endure for all generations. And he says this, I will never again act this way. I will never again destroy all that I have made with a flood. I'll never again send a great flood to destroy the earth. And then in the midst of the covenant, he makes a sign. What's the sign he places over them? A rainbow. Good, you're still with me. Told you it's going to be work this morning. He places a rainbow over them. And if you had the privilege of being raised in the church, your Sunday school teacher at some point probably told you, and you see the rainbow and you remember that God loves you. And that's true. But in the scriptures, it tells us that the rainbow is placed in the sky for a very important person. And that person is not you and me. That rainbow is placed in the sky for God himself. As he says in chapter 10, when I see the rainbow in the sky, I will remember the promise that I made to you and I will not destroy the earth by flood. And so I gotta tell you something. Every time that I see a rainbow in the sky, my thought is always this. God needed a reason and a reminder not to destroy me today. <laughs> I'm telling you, you'll never look at a rainbow the same after this. God made a promise and he fulfilled that promise. And he revealed that plan. He revealed it through the prophets and through his people. Until one night, hundreds of years later, when a man who otherwise should have been an antagonist and an enemy of Jesus came to him one night because he had heard and seen the things that he had done. And he came forward to Jesus and asked him questions. Questions about life and death. Questions about, about sin and forgiveness. Questions, meaningful things. And Jesus started off by saying this, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And he's hearkening in his mind the story of Genesis 6 when God said, my spirit will not contend with, contend with man's flesh forever for he is mortal. 
It reveals a greater plan that God is not going to contend with men's flesh, but instead is going to send his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit will overcome and will transport, will, will, trans, excuse me, will, will transform the Spirit of God inside of us. That God is revealing this plan through Jesus. God is acting again. God is renewing his creation. And Jesus continues. Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, will have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to redeem the world through him. Nicodemus, for God so loved the world. That's how it starts off. You know what those words mean? They mean that God has always loved the world. That even from the beginning, in the midst of the brokenness, God loved the world. That even when his heart was grieved at all that he had, at all he had created, God loved the world. That God still loved the world. And that he was sending his son Sending his son as a new plan of redemption, as a, new, as a new covenant of redemption. He would send his son to redeem the world, to reconcile the world, to forgive the world. And then he goes on, and he talks about light and darkness. That's the rest of John chapter 3. And he talks about the darkness that people love because their deeds are evil. And instead there will come a day when we will want to dwell in the light because as we dwell in the light, others will see the things that we are doing and will praise our Father who is in heaven. That we will know that the saving love of Jesus not only reconciles us with all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our warring against God, not only reconciles us to the Father, but that it reconciles us to one another. Because Jesus paid the punishment on our behalf. You see, there was no rainbow over the cross to protect Jesus. It was only the darkness of creation. Hiding our eyes from the wrath of God enacted on Jesus. But we know what we know. That God sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but to save the world through him. And this love has to take us the next step. This sacrificial love has to move in our hearts to transform who we are by the power of the Spirit. That we are born again, as Jesus says, by water and the Spirit. That now we are not given birth to simply by flesh, but by the Spirit of God. And that that Spirit dwells inside of us, causing the love of God to increase in us for others. Or as John will write in a letter later, we love because God first loved us. I often wonder what the situation was like prior to the flood. I often wonder just how bad it had gotten and what that increase of wickedness was truly like. And then I think about things in our own lives and about people who will absolutely hate one another. I mean, with vitriol toward one another because of the way that somebody voted in an election. Or of people who will will hide behind the relative anonymity of a keyboard and a computer screen in order to say absolutely disgusting things about one another and then smile at each other on Monday as if nothing had happened. And I wonder if those aren't modern iterations of a pre-modern problem. 
and of a sin that so easily entangles us all. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. He says that at the end of all things, the increase of wickedness will be such that the love of most will grow cold. Because there's so much wickedness and warring against one another that we'll simply just turn our backs on one another and our love will grow cold. I shudder at that thought. To make it worse, Jesus actually says the love of most will grow cold. We will be completely ambivalent toward one another. Author C.S. Lewis in the book The Great Divorce spoke about this kind of suspended isolation of hell where people moved farther and farther away, deeper and deeper into the darkness rather than being close to one another. The love of most will grow cold. And this is where it becomes a gut check for us. Do you still feel? Do you still feel when you see injustice? Do you still feel when you see children who are born into poverty? And remember that there are different types of poverty. It's not just poverty of wealth. The children who are born are the poverty of values. The children who are born into a poverty of love where no one tells them that they're precious. Do you still feel for your neighbor who's living apart from the saving love of Jesus Christ? Do you still feel in those times when you say, I'm not sure, when you wrestle with that, you have to know what you know. You have to rest on it. To go back to the work of God's Holy Spirit in you. To say, God, I, I need you to kindle in me the fire of your love. God, I need you to fulfill my prayer. Lord, help me to love others the way that you love them. Or, or maybe better, Lord, help me to love others the way that you love me. Lord, rekindle in my heart a fire of your love for others. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You are saved, rescued, forgiven. You are loved by God in Jesus Christ. Allow that love to transform you and imagine how that looks Imagine how that love transforms us to love others. Some of you probably remember the story of James Hinchcliffe. James Hinchcliffe is an IndyCar driver. Two years ago at the 500 in practice, uh, he had wreck that caused part of the car. You guys know about the Indy 500, right? It's this race, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Just making sure, right? Part of the car went through his leg. Wreck wasn't that bad, but he almost bled out because of it. That was the part that really got him. And he went through all this recovery. And you might remember, even the city of Indianapolis rallied around him on 465. Their billboards, get well soon, Hinch. Right? Any star ran thing on their, on their cover page for a long time, get well soon, Hinch. Flat 12 Beer Works downtown repainted the side of their building, get well soon, Hinch. And people were doing all this kind of stuff at the track, signing these things. And Hinchcliffe tells the story as he was recovering from this. He had to ask all those difficult questions in the midst of his recovery. Like, who am I and why am I doing this and why am I involved? He said, every time I got to those lowest points, I'd get a banner that everybody had signed. Or, or I'd turn on the race on TV and I'd see that all the cars had on their hashtag, get well soon, Hinch. And that encouraged me to keep going, 
push further and to keep pushing on, to keep going that extra step, that extra day. Even to the point of, of the community rallying around him and voting for him so he finished second and dancing with the stars, right? Oh yeah, I know about that one too. You know, what I, you know what my prayer is? My prayer is that we wouldn't have to go off to sports, to sports stories to talk about community. In fact, my prayer is that at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, they would talk about God's church, about a community of people that gets together to support one another and to encourage one another, about a community of people that uplifts one another in the most difficult of times, that speaks words of forgiveness to one another, that has a love kindled inside of them for others, a love that demonstrates the love that their God has for them, a love that is shown through them to the whole world, for God so loves the world that he sent his son. My prayer is that our love would show, so shine for others that they would praise our Father who is in heaven. May God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.